Well, good morning, Grace. Good, to see you. good morning online. Everybody sitting down? All right. Bringing it today. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 25 is coming at you. How to live as an exile. We're to live three ways. Let me start with, in 2014, in the summer of 2014, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria came into power. You know it as ISIS. And they felt like they were the Sunni jihadists. Jihad means holy war. And they started a holy war. They were especially violent. They specialized in genocide. Anyone, everyone that wasn't like them were to be killed. And they started with their fellow Muslims because they weren't Muslim enough. And then the Jews and the Kurds and the Turks. And when they found Christians, they would mark them. They would put this marking on them. It is Arabic for, it's a, a symbol for the Nazarene, the followers of Jesus, the Nazarene. And word got out. And Christians in the Middle East were going to get tagged with this. And they said, well, then let's do it. And they tagged themselves. They wore shirts with that logo on it. They had pins made up. Some of them had it tattooed on them. And it spread throughout the world. Christians were saying, I'm, an, I'm part of the Nazarene. And I'm not hiding. And I won't be alone. Yeah. Those Christians in the Middle East, they feared God. And because they feared God, they didn't fear anything else. That's the same attitude of confidence and hope that Peter is trying to inflict upon us in this first book of Peter. Because in the context of 1 Peter, it's the summer of, 19, of, of, summer of 64, 64, plain 64 AD. Nero, the emperor of, of Rome, has burned the city for nine days. And to get out of trouble, he lies and blames this small group of already persecuted people, Nazarenes, the followers of the Nazarene, the Christians. And now it is open season on God's holy church. That's the context that Peter writes. Peter's writing people that are being persecuted unto death, unto death by this Emperor Nero and his army and his media machine. And he's trying to help us to live joyful in the context of storms and persecution. And here's how he starts. He wants us to have a whole different worldview. He wants us to understand the way we are to think. We are to think as though we are aliens. This is not our home. We are foreigners. We're in exile. We're supposed to be different. We are supposed to be different because we have a different kingdom. We have a different authority. Therefore, we have a different set of values. So we're not going to blend in. We're going to feel out of sorts. In the first few verses of 1 Peter, he starts off, and Peter's tenderhearted, these first 12 verses. He's going to tell us who we are and what we have. And tells us in such a special and nice way. He says who we are. He says we are chosen exiles. It was all part of the Father's plan and through the, the execution of the Spirit and the obedience of the Son. 
All three parts of the Godhead have involved themselves in premeditating and ensuring that we would be God's chosen exiles, foreigners from somewhere else. Our, our home is in heaven. And in and, and, and this section, the first 12 verses, I mentioned Peter's polite. It's literally in the Greek. It's in the indicative mood. He's just going to indicate to us all that we are and all that we have. And then in chapter 13, there's a change of mood. Oh, there's a literal Greek change of mood. From this point on, he'll be doing uh, what the mood will be in grammar, the imperative mood. And Peter's going to bark out five exhortations right away. He's going to tell you how to be how you ought to live. He's not talking like he is in the first 12 verses, informing you. He's coming after us. He's going to come at us like a coach or probably even better like a drill instructor because he wants you, to, he wants you and me to like wake up because if we get this wrong, people get hurt. People die. There's consequences for our decisions. And Peter's concerned that some of us just don't get it. And so, since that's the way he's taught these verses 13 through 25, I'll be doing the same thing because mood is part of this truth, part of the method, message. So here it comes. Peter starts off with therefore in chapter, 13, or chapter 1, verse 13. He starts therefore. In, in other words, since I've already told you those things, that you're God's holy people, he's going to come in and say, look, listen, you need to tack up. That means get your tactical gear on. He says, jock up. Where's your helmet? He's going to say here, suit up, suit up. Wake up. Let's get going. Look what he says. We're supposed to live in holiness, awe, and love. Therefore, therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires uh, that you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. It is written, be holy because I am holy. Here's what he's saying. Hope starts here. Before he starts talking about how, how to live in holiness and in awe and in love, he says, hope starts here. Hope is tack up, jock up, suit up your minds. The literal translation of that first sentence says this. Therefore, gird up your minds. Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace that brought you, uh, that was brought to you at the day of the revelation of Jesus Christ. <laughs> he's literally saying, get dressed for war. He's, he's, he's saying, on, you know, kind of on the backhand, he's saying, what are you doing wearing street clothes into combat? I mean, you, you should have tactical gear on. That's what tack up means. Look at you and your cute little loafers. We're hiking 50 miles the first day. Your feet will be bloody. You won't have a chance. Do you know we're at war? Did you know that? He's literally saying, get dressed for a literal physical war. That's what those first few words mean. But he's not talking literally. He's talking metaphorically. And so Peter's saying, suit up, tack up, jock up your thoughts, your mind. It's not a physical war. It's a mental war. It's a battle for your mind. It's a fight for your thoughts. And that's why he's saying here, gird up your minds. Get sober. Don't you know we're in a war here? 
Think about your thoughts. In other words, not only just think about thoughts that are lies, but also, are you making decisions on feelings? Feelings, this is no time to be consulting feelings about what is right and real and true. Peter starts and ends his, his letter to these people because they need, they gotta, they're in trouble here. And there's a sense of urgency at the beginning and the end. He's saying, think, think soberly. You gotta, you gotta watch your thoughts. Look what he says in chapter five, the last chapter. Be alert and of sober mind. He's talking about thinking. Be alert and of sober mind. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This is, you're going to get killed here, your soul. Listen, look, look, look. The enemy is not this Nero character and, and his army and his, and his media machine. The enemy is the devil. Wake up your brain to this, he's saying. Because the lion, he devours the weak thoughts, those who are sloppy in their thinking. And some of us, we're sloppy thinkers. I mean, we're just, we're just taking in the lying liars in politics and media and social sites and stuff, and we're just, like, taking it in. And, and this de- this, the devil, he's playing us like a flute. And when the dance is over, he'll devour us. He'll spit us out. And it's, and, it's, and it's no wonder so many people in the church, like, live their lives ping-ponging back and forth between anger and fear. Here's why. They're not taking their thoughts captive. They're not sued up, they're not jocked up, they're not tactical in their thinking. They're afraid. Sloppy thinking is going to get us killed. That's what Peter's saying here. Wake up, suit up, tough-minded, sober thinking. That's the world we're living in right now. That's how you're supposed to live. There's a devil, and he wants between your ears. You want to know more about that? I want to tell you about how awesome our youth group is. Wonderful youth. They just had a retreat talking about how the devil is out to destroy us. If you want to know how that works, you can come to their wrap-up tonight. It's at 6.30 right here in the worship center. You can bring a dinner if you want. Come early, eat out of the picnic grounds, come here. Or if you don't, you want to do that, the youth group has put together for us <laughs> a little temptation test. It, it just kind of shows what kind of things the devil's going to dangle be, uh, in front of you so that he can devour you. You can go online, go to Gracer 60, go to youth group, travel down on that site, and it'll say temptation test. Take that test. Talk about it amongst your friends or family. I think it'll be helpful because there's, there's, a, the, devil, there's a devil out there. He's a roaring lion. He's going to devour the sloppy thinkers that don't know any better. Peter says this, tack up your mind. Sharpen up your thinking. And then he says this. Here's hope. He says, look up. Look up to the object of our hope. Look up to the object of our hope. He's he's going to tell us to be focusing on the triumphal return of our king. Here's the thing. Sure, we get to know Jesus Christ in our justification. And then right now, yep, we are part of the sanctification process that the Spirit is working in our life to we, so we can become like Christ. We know Christ. We become like Christ. Peter keeps pointing towards Jesus' return because we get to be with Jesus Christ. 
That day is different. We get to be with Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 13. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. (laughs) Revealed. You know the Greek word for revealed. It's the word apocalypse. Greek apocalypse means revealed. This is the fourth time that Peter has used apocalypse, a reference to the apocalypse, in 13 verses. Four times. And you know why? Because he wants us to be thinking about that ultimate expression of salvation that's coming later. Because his audience that he's talking to, that he's writing, his audience is going, like, what about justice? And I, I, can, I can just hear a conversation with someone that has been killed by Nero and his gulag. And they get to heaven, they pull over an angel after end times, and, and they say, uh, hey, look, I just want to be, I just want to make, like, I want to make sure on something. What about Nero? What about what a, like, was Nero brought to justice? And, and the angel's like, Nero? You mean all those dogs? What? Dogs named Nero? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of dogs named Nero. People named dogs, Nero? Yeah, I guess you weren't there for that. But anyway, yeah, well, who are you talking about? No, Nero, the great Nero, the emperor of, of Rome. And the angel says, never heard of her. <laughs> it won't matter then. Justice will come. Have you read about the apocalypse? When Jesus comes, again, he's going to be riding a great white war horse that will have blood up to its stirrups, the blood of the justice of the king. That's what we're looking forward to. Oh, yeah, justice, (laughs) it's going to be there. And on that day of justice, You and me, here's what we're going to have our hope in. Here's how we're going to survive that, according to this passage. We're going to survive that because we are going to be absolutely doused in the smell of the grace of God. Like some seventh grade kid sprayed us with Axe spray. Just, we, we will have this pungent aroma of God's grace on us. And that will cause demons to hack and cough and gag. That's what our hope is in, that grace. Look what it says. Put your hope completely in the grace. We're putting our hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed in his coming. Two things. I want to make sure you get this, okay? Where's your hope? It's not even in Jesus. Your hope is in the grace that you're going to receive on the day he comes into town riding that great white war horse and he's stirrup deep in the blood of justice. We're going to be hoping in that. But what else does it say? It says completely. Put your hope completely in that grace. Not mostly grace and a little bit of my intelligence. Mostly grace and some of my contacts. A whole lot of grace and some of my money that I have in savings. No. He says, put your hope completely in the grace that will be given to you at the revelation, at the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. Because when you have some hope in that grace, all those other things you have hope in, the roaring lion comes and devours those. I mean, that's, I mean, that's going to get caught between his teeth and he won't even care. He chews up that hope all day long. So Peter's saying this, let me make it clear, look up. Look up completely at the hope 
in the grace that you'll receive on the day of the glorification, when we see him, when we are with him. That's how we're to live. That's our hope. That's, that's how we live. It's hope. How are, to, are we to live between this day and that day? How do we live from today until the apocalypse? He says three ways. You want to live holy, you want to live in awe, and you want to live in love. Here we go. A life of holiness. He says, as obedient children, do not conform. Don't slip into the evil desires you had when you, were, when you lived in ignorance. But just as he called you, I'm sorry, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. As it is written, be holy because I am holy. This is how we're supposed to live as obedient children. How are we supposed to live? Holy. How, do you, how, do you, how are you supposed to live holy? Like literally, how do you do that? He tells us. It's like two parts. And it's throughout the Bible, by the way. Stop doing bad. Start doing good. He says, stop being like the old you. Stop like you, you should know better, in other words. Don't be like the old you. Don't slip into those old patterns. He's saying this. Look, tack up your thinking. Why did you leave that old lifestyle? Because it was killing you and everybody you loved. He's saying, look, look, think about this. It's like jock up your thoughts. Because every time you go back to some old memories, you keep remembering all the laughter, but you, you, you keep boxing out the tears. Why don't you jock up that and remember all those tears too? He's saying, suit up your thinking about your old days when you were ignorant, and now you know better. This is, look, this is how sloppy thinking will get you devoured, okay? This is how it happens. I love, I love the New Living Translation, how it says, slip into old patterns. You, start, you just entertain thoughts. You just like entertaining them. I mean, I'm just bringing this, like, wine cup home. <laughs> it's this little thing, and it's cute. I mean, it's cute, and I can control this. And it's like, okay, that's good. And then every time you revisit that area of thought that usually leads to action, you're feeding that little line cub. And it grows in its power and its influence. And then one day, you're wrapped around its finger. The Bible calls it a stronghold. The Bible says you're in bondage. And it was your choice. They were little choices. They were all along the way. You just kind of slipped into it, it says. He just says you should know better. Peter says, stop thinking, stop doing the old you. And then he turns, it goes, start being the new you. Start being holy. Look what he says. But just as, you, just, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. As it is written, be holy because I'm holy. Holiness. Holiness, um, it means wholeness. As a matter of fact, the English word wholeness comes from the Bible word holiness. In other words, it means complete. It, it's a version of a perfect. And we love we love holiness, wholeness attached to holy or perfect justice, perfect love, perfect goodness. There's areas in our life where we want that to happen. We don't want to marry someone that's eh, mostly truthful, <laughs> right? We want them to be wholly truthful. We want them to be somewhat faithful. No, we want them to be wholly faithful. We'd love it if they loved us sometimes. We want them to be wholly loving. Complete, whole, complete, the whole, the way we were meant to be. I love how he, he, he appeals to our design because he says, 
just as God is holy and we're in his image. We're in the image of God. God is holy, so be holy. Be who you were designed to be. To be clear, the highest calling for a Christian is to be holy, not happy. And this is where I think some people, especially in our country, tend to get a little mixed up because they think God's call for them is to be happy. And so whenever they're not happy, they're, they, oh, wait a minute, I must not be in God's will. Something must be wrong if I'm lonely or I'm uncomfortable or I am nervous. I am having to take risks. He's asking me to do something that would lead me to suffering. That must be wrong. No, God, <laughs> quite often suffering leads to holiness. Sometimes happiness leads to holiness, but holiness is God's aim for us, that he's premeditated us and predestined us to become holy. Holy means, literally means, not the English word that we get from it, but rather the other way around, the literal Greek word and the Hebrew word means cut away or cut apart from, cut apart from the common. In other words, different. We, you and me, as Christians, we're totally different. We're exiles. We're foreigners. We're supposed to feel like weird here, like out of place. And if you don't, like if you just fit into the culture, that should, that should make you nervous. That if you can fit right into the culture, that means you might not be born again. You might not be in exile. You might find this place home. I love how Augustine ex explains like the contrast between the exiles and the locals. He says this, Christians are most out of sync with the world in their relationships with three things, money, power, and sex. The world is stingy with its money, but it's promiscuous with its sex. Christians, by contrast, are promiscuous with their money and their power, but stingy with their sex. It's the exact opposite of the world. <laughs> See? In these three areas, they all three have extreme power and influence and, and, and consequence, right? A Christian knows that uh, sex is something that is an expression, a, a, a metaphor of the intimacy that we have with God. We also, the Christian says, look, not all body parts are created equal. And when body parts are in contact with, with one another, our souls and spirit become one with one another. So we're pretty stingy with that. And we want to make sure there's a complete give when that happens. As far as resources go, where the world is stingy with its power and money, we just go, eh, it's temporary. And so we use it like Jesus used his power and his wealth. We try to use it to help other people. We try to give it away as much as possible. Here's, here's the thing. I think sometimes the greatest hindrance for some people to, to be holy is they want to fit in. I know it's just so, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's an intuitive desire to, to not be alone. But God didn't make us to fit in. He literally designed the Christian to stand out. He, he, didn't, he didn't make us to, to blend in. He made us to be different. We are to be different. So this section of Scripture, before he starts talking about living in awe, he's saying, suit up your thoughts. Get sober in the way you're making your decisions, my brothers and sisters. You need to be completely fixated on the grace that you will receive when Jesus Christ comes back to be our judge. 
Don't go slipping back into old patterns. Come on. I mean, we all know better than that, right? We are made to be holy by the holy cod, and so we should live and be holy. Now, Peter's going to say, well, he's going to answer the question, how do I be holy and why should I be holy? How does this work and why does it work? And that's when he says the second part of how do we live in exile is to live in awe, to live in awe. 17 through 21, it's really dense. So I'm going to give you the outline before we get there. This is he's just so full of meaning. He's saying, here's how you live in awe. You're going to live in awe because of who God is, his title. And then he's going to say, because of what he did and how much it cost. That's all three of those things will put you in a place of awe. First part, he says, who God is. Since, here's how you should live in awe. Since you call on the Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners, outsiders, here with reverent fear. We should be in awe because, the, first of all, he leads with father. His title is Father, who is this objective judge? He is the judge, and he will judge every person according to their deeds. And, and he's going to be absolutely fair in all of that. And because of that, we're supposed to, because he judges impartially, we're supposed to live with a tender conscience. Like, and, and doing whatever it takes to keep it tender. We need to be watchful about temptations, not letting anything into our life before it gets too strong and takes over it. We don't want to live a life that displeases God. He's our father, and he's a judge, so we live reverently. That's what he says, living holy. Living holy in awe because of who he is. Now he's going to tell us what he did and how much it cost. Verse 16, I think it's... For you, know, for you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed or ransomed, that's literally the ransomed, from uh, the empty way of life headed down to you from, handed down to you from your ancestors, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these times, in these last times, for your sake." What did he do? He sent, the father sent his son, his only son, the one that he loved, Jesus, the Nazarene. And what was the ransom due for our, our sins against the holiness of God? Was it, was it the wealth of God, the vast wealth of God, all the created things? No, because if it was created, it could be perishable. The ransom for our sin was not something it was someone, the only begotten son, not created, only begotten son. Our freedom and our life cost Jesus his freedom and his life. And he was beaten, literally bled to death to pay our debt. He was shamed in ways that made angels weep and the demons gloat so that we would never be shamed again. And all of that was part of a plan that, that, was, that was come to before the beginning of time, it says. Look what, he, look what he says. And so because of that, through him, through Jesus, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now you're in awe. How are you supposed to live from this day till that? You live in awe. You live holy. And you live holy because you're overwhelmed in awe. And then finally, he says, here's another way to live between now and then. Live in love. Live in love. Look what he talks about loving each other here. Now that you've been purified 
yourselves by obeying the truth that so that uh, you have since so that you will have sincere love for each other love one another deeply <laughs> he says sincere love for each other love one another deeply from the heart no really little girl <laughs> like you're talking to your son or daughter no really love your sister right anyway sorry for you've been born again here's why you've been born again not with perishable seed but from imperishable through, through the living and the enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, and they fail. But, but the word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word that we preach to you. Why does Peter have to say love each other? I mean, we're living holy. We're living in awe. Oh, yeah, love each other. Why does he do that? I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's just me, but, you know, in very difficult times when there's persecution and the devil's mixed into that, the devil goes after unifying all those things sacred, sacred things, like the family and the family of God, the church. And when times are good, oh, we can get along famously, can't we? When the cotton's high, I'm generous. I'm, I'm facing out to other people. I'm giving. I'm giving grace. I'm forgiving in a large way. All good. Look, it's easy. But that's not where these people are. It's persecution. It's hard times. Did I tell you there's a lion roaring about? And he's getting into their minds, into their thoughts, because they haven't suited up and now they're starting to get divided. They're turning on each other. When times get tough, people turn in their flesh. They turn in and they say, it's about me and mine. I got to make sure. Fear and insecurity are driving me now. And they're on the same team. They're on the same team is what he's saying here, no matter what the circumstances are. You know, we have a thing in our family where someone gets to scream, same team. Like when we get in arguments and we're going back and forth during very difficult times, like during persecution, like we're going to the beach together and somebody touched somebody, right? One of those really difficult times in families and we're all back and forth, back and forth going, and somebody says, same team. Like, right. <laughs> we love each other. <laughs> same team in the kitchen. Lynn and I are going back and forth. Same team. Right, yeah, we're, what are we doing? I'll tell you what we didn't do. We didn't suit up. We didn't tack up. We didn't, we didn't jock up our thinking. We thought we were here all by ourselves in the kitchen or on this little road trip down south. There's a devil out there. He's a roaring lion. He's prowling, looking for somebody with sloppy thinking. That's all, all you have to do. And so we go back and forth, don't we? And nowadays hey, let's do it on public forums, shall we? Why don't we just do that in front of the whole world? And what do, you think, what do you think is going on in the spirit world when two Christians, a brother and a sister, are on one of these mediums, and they're, and they're just like violating all the laws of reason, you know, and, and building straw men and, and making accusations and dividing? I mean, you just see the demons just eating popcorn, just feeding these thoughts, and the whole world watches and the Trinity weeps. And Peter's saying, it's the same team, man. Come on. Really, in front of everyone? Over something that's political? That you bought into, the, like, the, like, the thing of the week that has been, like, invented so that you would be divided? 
Come on, man. Come on. Tack up, jack up. What are you thinking? This is no time for that. We're going to get devoured. He's going to divide and conquer because that's what he does. You got to stay sharp. You got to get your mind back where it was meant to be. Awestruck. Smelling the grace of God that we're going to be covered with when he returns. Think about that. Be in awe for that. Have your hope completely in that. Love each other. Sincerely. Deeply. Authentically. And you know why? Because he says right here, for you were born, because you have been born again, not by perishable seed, but by the imperishable. Through the living and enduring word of God. You're born again from above by a supernatural experience for eternity. This brother-sister thing, it's going to go on for a while. So let me read it. Hey, Grace, listen up. Check your passport, would you? Where are you from? You're not from here. No, you're strangers. You're out-of-towners. This isn't your home. You belong to the Father and to the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you're going home to them soon, very soon. So until then, could you tack up, get sober with your thinking? My brothers and sisters, don't let this culture get in your head. Because when it does, it is progressively digressing. And not only will it destroy you, it'll destroy all those things that the Lord touches. So be completely fixated on the aroma of your grace that you will have surrounding you when Jesus comes in and makes this right, all things right. When he comes to judge the world, don't toy with kitten lions of your old days of the past. You know better than that. That's why you left it. You were saved from that. And it took the blood of Jesus to get you saved out of that. So now, until then, you live in awe. You live in awe. You live holy because you were made holy. You live in awe because the Father, he's going to judge everyone. He's going to be fair. And what he did to make us his, he gave us his son, his only begotten son, who not only paid with his life, he paid with his honor. So, could you love each other? Totally? Completely? Sincerely? I mean, you're all, we're all born again from the eternal word of Jesus Christ. Let's live that way. A life without regrets until his coming. Amen.